This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And uh, today I wanted to bring back a classic um, that Kristen and Caroline did about women who make wine. I was thinking about this because I told this story before, but my mom always... (laughs) for pretty much any occasion, uh, gets me a bunch of local wines. Oh. Yeah, it's really sweet. So I got a bunch for Christmas. Um, and I know that some of the winemakers from those wineries are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just thinking about it. I kind of joked with Samantha before this that I felt a little weird rerunning this one because I know it's like dry January for a lot of people. And if you're doing that, more power to you, I hope. Uh, it's going well for you. But this was just something on my mind as I was looking at the the lineup of wines that my mm-hmm. mom got me. She also, Samantha, you know I don't like snacks. She got me in my stocking this year. She got me Brahmin packets and shishito peppers, like dry shishito peppers. And I was like, this is amazing. You have one. She knows you. She knows you <laughs> yes. so well. That's beautiful. Yes. So please enjoy this classic episode. Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about viticulture and enology. Ooh, those are fancy words. Yeah, we're just talking about wine. Yeah, viticulture, the cultivation or culture of grapes. Enology, a science that deals with wine and winemaking. And wine itself is considered, quote, our original alcoholic beverage dating back 8,000 years. 
according to the book, Inventing Wine by Paul Lukacs. It's also the only thing that they drink in uh, Game of Thrones, I think. Oh, yeah, I don't think wine. I've ever seen anyone drink water. I think they just drink wine. Probably because the water is full of poison. Full of dragon poison. Yes. Well, anyway, um, wine, you know, it's it's more than just the boxed wine that I may or may not buy on a regular basis. Wine is actually linked inextricably, according to Anne B. Matasar, with religious worship, revelry, camaraderie, and upper-class entitlement. And she says that it's often been a beverage reserved for men of privilege. Yeah, she writes in her book, Women of Wine, the Rise of Women in the Global Wine Industry, that women, regardless of social standing, were associated with wine's excesses rather than its benefits. Inebriated women were frequently linked to indiscriminate sexuality, promiscuity, and adultery. So right from the get-go in our conversation about wine and women, it starts off on a bit of a sexist foot. Yeah, Sally would not approve of this. She would be like, oh, heavens. Sally, your mom? Sally, my mom, uh, drinks uh, quite her fair share of wine. We're, we're big wine drinkers in our family. I say we, but I really mean my mom and her sisters. So wine would not be a stuff your mom never told you. Right. Well, not that we've talked about it, but I learned from the best. Let's put it that way. Well, Sally is among... Plenty of friends in the United (laughs) States. Americans really love their wine. In fact, in 2012, 342 million cases of wine were consumed, which is a 7% increase from five years ago. So not only are we drinking a lot of wine, we're drinking more wine than ever before in the United States. And by volume, we Americans consume more wine than any other nation, actually. But not so surprisingly, on a per capita basis, the French, for instance, drink a lot more wine than we do. They drink five bottles for every one that we drink. And also, as a nation, we Americans are just as likely to reach for wine as for beer, which is actually a huge shift from 20 years ago. We're drinking a lot more wine now. Yeah, and some think that the spike in our wine consumption is due to two things. First of all, the recession, because let's face it, two buck Chuck from Trader Joe's can get you pretty drunk on a dime. (laughs) And they also attribute it to changing preferences of millennials because a 2012 Gallup poll found a 30 point drop in beer preference among people under 30. So Mm. youngins like you and I, Caroline, are... Really enjoying wine more. Interesting. I wonder. I wonder what's behind the drop in beer. Not just the rise in wine, but the drop in beer also. I mean, they also attribute this um, rise in wine loving to drinkers over fifty and women in particular. Yeah, women love wine. One of the reasons why we wanted to do this episode on wine is because I feel like at least if you were to choose an a type of alcoholic beverage that women are going to go for if they walk up to an open bar, it's going to be a glass of wine, probably a glass of white wine or maybe a vodka tonic, but that's another episode. <laughs> um but women buy 8 out of 10 bottles of wine consumed at home according to the magazine Wine business. Yeah, and according to that Gallup poll that you talked about, um, 52% of women prefer wine over beer, and that's up from 43% 20 years ago. 
Now, looking at men, only 20% of men choose wine as their favorite boozy beverage. But even that is up 5% from 20 years ago. Yeah, and to me, the fact that women comprise an overwhelming majority of the wine buyers for the wine that we have in our households and also wine drinkers, it stands in contrast to that quote from Women and Wine about the history mm-hmm. long ago where women were associated only with wine's excesses. And as we'll see in the making of wine, in the viticulture, women have often been relegated to the side, only allowed to do certain smaller tasks, whereas the making of wine has been more of a thing for men. And yet today... We're drinking more of it, but maybe because of that colored history that we have with wine, women are still considered a niche market yeah, in a lot of ways. we are. And that's interesting. When I was reading all this stuff about how we are this niche market, I mean, I, I think it's obvious when you when you Google anything about women and wine, a lot of what you get is this really sappy advertising that's like women and wine and shoes and women and wine and baking and women and wine and tools. I don't know. But, you know, like I said, me growing up, I was surrounded by female wine drinkers. My dad didn't drink wine. So I've always thought of like wine as a more feminine beverage. And yet the industry is just now catching up to that. For instance, in 2006, we have the launch of Wine Adventure, which proclaims itself the first wine magazine for women. But side note, why there needs to be a wine magazine for women, I don't really understand. Right. And that's kind of what slate writer Mike Steinberger was talking about in the 2005 piece, where he really seemed confused to hear the news that wine wasn't already a happily co-ed party. And he said that to suggest that women have a distinct set of grievances about how wine is critiqued ignores the fact that quite a few men are equally disaffected and often leads to that kind of patronizing saccharine journalism that most women and men rightly abhor. And he said that the wine market has a consumer gap, not a gender gap. He said it's not so much that we need to, like, capture this niche market of women or, you know, older women, younger women, whoever. It's more that different consumers are looking for different things because there's the whole thing about like men wanting to buy wine according to their fancy pants ratings, whereas women are maybe more inclined to buy wine that they want to share with their friends. Yeah, I mean, experts and marketers have paid a lot of attention to how men and women shop for wine. And so typically they say that the way that women select wine has a lot more to do with the food that's going to go with it, the setting, and what the bottle looks like, rather than wine credentials like vintage charts and the acquisition process and ratings that they say that men are more drawn to. Yeah, I will fully admit here in front of you and everybody else that I love a good typeface on a bottle of wine. Uh, I mean, I tend to go for like Shiraz or Syrah, like, but I think I've said this on the podcast before. I can only drink red wine. Like if I'm out, I can only have a glass. If I'm at home, I have to be already in my pajamas sitting down because it will put me to sleep. But like there's this bottle of wine that has a, a like a luchador mask, a lucha libre mask on the cover or the cover, like it's an album on the front label. And I just I love that. It's like getting a Happy Meal toy as an adult. 
Well, while your attraction to certain types of labels definitely meshes with the research, Caroline, you are not of the stereotype that women prefer light wines. Women, uh, supposedly, a woman's wine is a Pinot Grigio, whereas a man's wine is a broad-shouldered Cabernet. Ooh, Sally, Sally would Sally would agree with these stereotypes. She she drinks a nice Pinot Grigio every night with uh, with ice cubes. With ice cubes. Oh, for sure. Nice. Well, that meshes very well, Caroline, with this description in wine business as to what women want in wine. Wine business says the short answer is something balanced and drinkable, enjoyable and easy to deal with. Screw the unnecessary complexities. Well, I found that uh, that piece to be kind of obnoxious. Well, sure, because it sounds like women will just drink anything. (laughs) Well, but it also framed wine drinking in terms of um, like peacekeeping and conflicts and and things like that, which was very strange and I thought very pandering. Well, maybe that's an example of the saccharine journalism that that slate writer was calling out saying, why why all these metaphors with wine writing? Can we not just talk about some grapes? I know. I mean, yeah, there really is this movement toward treating women wine drinkers as, you know, we're all like part of this weird airhead brigade that doesn't care about the wine itself, you know, or, well, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who buys wine according to labels, but whatever, whatever. They're treating us all like, you know, we, we only care about the name of the wine itself or like it's appealing to some like girly sex in the city culture. Right. It's okay. So what has happened here is that marketers have taken the finding, the overwhelming finding that women want, say, something balanced and drinkable. They want ripe, fruit-forward wines without a lot of tannin and oak as, okay, well, you know the way we're going to sell this is we're going to almost inflate that to a chiclet proportion because I feel like you walk through the wine section at the grocery store and you could take labels from these wines that are overtly marketed toward women and slap them on a beach read. Yeah. And you wouldn't know the difference because it's lots of pink, lots of stilettos, ponytail silhouettes with names like mommy juice, made housewife. And then to me, the worst, which is this line called B B E from Treasury Wine Estates. It's targeting women 21 to 34. So our demographic, Caroline, this, mm-hmm. this wine is for us. And their flavors are flirty, which is a pink Moscato, bright, a Pinot Grigio, fresh, an unoaked Chardonnay, and radiant, a Riesling. And then all of the language describing it is like a page ripped out of uh, Sex in the City. It's so funny because I've, I've had bright, but I wasn't aware of any of this that we're just talking about. Like, I wasn't aware that it was marketed to women or that it was supposed to be cutesy or anything like that. I just thought, oh, well, it's just called this. I don't think I realized. How was it? Do you remember? I don't know. It was wine-ish. It was very whiny. <laughs> tasted like wine. Well, the fact that it was whiny and just tasted like wine, you know, it didn't really have any distinctive flavor profiles. It's what a lot of people would argue that it's actually doing a disservice to women who like wine because a lot of these wines marketed to women are just plonk. 
It's not very good. It's hyper sweet and not high quality. Yeah, not just plonk. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Uh, Bloomberg writer Ellen McCoy says that it's neutered commercial plonk. So they're really trying to sell you on those stiletto pictures more than they're trying to sell you on the what's in the bottle. Which, you know, I, I've purchased wine before, like, if I'm going to someone's house and I, I just, you know, I'm not buying it because it's so fancy and I want to give them an incredible wine to remember me by. But, like, you know, I went to go stay with my aunt Savannah one time and she's the middle sister. And so I bought her a bottle of middle sister wine. Ah, so like, you know, I was like, eh, well, it might not be any good or maybe it is, but this but is it, just. But it showed that you were thinking about her. It was more right. of a, a gift in that way. Um, it, oh, another facet of the more recent approach to wine marketing toward women is how it's not just been a focus on labels and the titling of things like middle sister, et cetera, but also in how they're starting to peddle wine specifically to working moms as here's your mental health break. I just need a glass of wine. And I say it in that voice jokingly, but I do understand the relaxation of having a glass of wine after work. I understand where that marketing is coming from, but 
I don't know that saying, here, women, drink all of this wine. It's going to make all of the gender wage gap and the frustration with the, you know, the imbalance of housework and childcare just magically go away for the next 45 minutes. Oh, God. Yeah, no, I've, I have totally come home and popped open my box of wine and poured myself a triple, quadruple glass. But, I mean, this is not a joke. This is serious. Uh, there are UK health experts who recently noted that a rise there was a rise in alcohol-related deaths among women in their 30s and 40s, and it's linked to this increase in wine consumption. Yeah, so in a way, that kind of marketing, persistent marketing, could be doing us a health disservice in the long run, saying, you know what, it's wine, it's got those antioxidants, right. it's going to give you a mental health break. Just do it. Just drink it. It doesn't matter the quality. Just drink all of this really sugary stuff and you'll be fine. Although moderate consumption at a glass and a half of wine per day has been linked to positive health effects in women for things like preventing bone loss, as we read over at NPR. But again, it's all about moderation. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually stopped. There was a period. <laughs> there was a period where I was going home and like having a glass of red wine every night. Not that that's like excessive or bad or terrible or anything by any means. But it, it, it got to a point where I was like, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I've I've had like a string of really stressful days at work or whatever. I just got out of traffic or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, maybe I should just try other relaxation methods like a bath, like some yoga or just lying on the couch even for a minute when you get home. Yeah, I just I, I wonder if the messages are being mixed in terms of the with alcoholism and wine, it seems like. It's easier for women to, and I say this in giant air quotes, get away with it because, oh, we're just having, we're just having a glass of wine or two glasses of wine or three glasses of wine. And oh, there's the bottle. Yes. And it's part of this like cultural idea of what is acceptable and sophisticated and normal and feminine and female when it comes to like drinking and relaxing. Because if somebody goes home every night and downs half a bottle of vodka, you're like, oh, well, you have a problem. And if someone goes home and drinks a six pack of beer, it would say, oh, that's so unladylike. Why would you be doing that? Yeah. And you're going to get a beer gut. Exactly. But there's no we don't hear about wine bellies. Right. You know, um, so that that is something it's something that I have started to keep in mind more for myself, because I've experienced the same thing as you, Caroline, of getting into those patterns of how easy it is to Go home, have the wine, and while again, in moderation, it's not a bad thing, I'm uncomfortable when I realize that it's so much a part of my routine, I'm mm-hmm. almost reliant on it. Yeah. That I don't like. And often what you need, and I mean, let's not sound like a broken record here, but often what you need is like a break. When you're stressed out like that, you need a break. Well, I mean, you know, if I get home from work and after I've been sitting in traffic or whatever, it's just, well, not just as easy, but it's much healthier to head down to the gym downstairs in my apartment complex and get on the, you know, the stationary bike for 30 minutes. That's the same kind of break, but I've exercised instead of, you know, downing a bunch, like half a bottle of wine. Exactly. And just as one final side note, rather than just springing always for the two buck chuck, one thing I am trying to get better at is learning more about wine and learning how to 
enjoy wine because when you have a glass of really, really, really great wine, Mm -hmm. you are going to drink it more slowly and you're going to savor it. Whereas you might, if, if, if you're poured a glass of flirty pink Moscato, you're probably just going to gulp it down. Because it might not be so good. But speaking of taste, getting getting back to this conversation on men, women, and wine, we've established the stereotype of women preferring the lighter, sweeter wines and men wanting something bolder and redder. Do men and women taste wine differently? Are women just drawn to wine because there's something in our palate working differently than men's? It it seems to be so. It seems to be that men and women do taste differently. And, I mean, one thing to look at is that wines themselves are often described as masculine or feminine in their weight and flavor. Yeah, and for people who are deeply immersed in wine culture, there is this idea that women do have a finer palate. For instance, Matt Kramer of Wine Spectator told at age that women have more taste buds than men, which makes them inherently better tasters. And then in another article in Wine Business, it says, as women wine judges, we might be unfairly harsh. We're quick to dismiss any wine that comes out with sharp elbows, too much tannin, too much acid, or too much wood, and increasingly too much alcohol. So that seems to be an example of how perhaps our tongues are a little bit more sensitive to certain flavor profiles. Right. And sensory psychologist Marsha Pelchat at the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia backs up some of these taste differences. She says that women have more acute senses of smell. We flat out prefer less carbonation in wine. And we tend to be more sensitive to bitter flavors and just like butterflies and hummingbirds prefer slightly sweeter wines. But when Letty Teague, who is a wine columnist for the Wall Street Journal, when she sought out an answer to a scientific answer as to whether men and women taste wine differently. And she spoke with a number of sommeliers, some of whom were husband and wife couples to kind of get that his and hers comparison. Her conclusion was that when it comes to wine tasting, the palate seems to be more a product of exposure and training rather than biological sex. So while there might be some sensory differences in the male versus the female tongue, With the preference for sweeter wines, for instance, I can understand how that exposure can change your preference because I remember in my younger years, in college days, of course, I wasn't being exposed to many fine wines. And from the get-go, I would want something more of like a sweeter Riesling or a lot of white wines. I hated Merlot. But now as I've gotten older and I've had more wine, I drink almost exclusively red, and I want it to be a richer taste. I don't really like sweet all that much anymore. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think the same could go for any type of thing you are training yourself to imbibe. I mean, you know, it's the same for beer. I never liked beer when I was younger. And then when I went to college, not to, like, completely give away to my parents when I started drinking But when I went away to college, you know, I'm just drinking the free junk that's in the keg. And, you know, I hated it. And I would try to drink like, you know, vodka tonics and stuff like that. Well, like as I got older, I really, really started to like 
better beer. And now I spend way too much money on beer. And it's funny because I dated this, this, well, this jerk who we were talking about beers one time and he actually asked me, so, uh, what guy in your life introduced you to good beer? So after he picked himself up off the ground, I informed him that I just developed a palate for better beer as I got older. Yeah, and it it does make such a difference. And I also don't want to seem like I'm trying to gang up on white wines. I've had experiences, too, of drinking a better Pinot Grigio and or a better Chardonnay, and it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. And it, even though that's not normally what I spring for, tasting it, I get it. It's delicious. Yeah. It's buttery. It's light. It's summer. <laughs> no, not all that, but <laughs> but it was still very refreshing. Um, and I, I mentioned that uh, Letty T talked with sommeliers, both male and female. And the thing is, is that women are not only making strides in terms of consumption and the wine industry catching up slowly but surely and in kind of roundabout ways to women liking and appreciating wine, maybe in different ways than men do. But we are also making strides in the actual production of wine, although women have been involved in viticulture for a long, long time. Well, I mean, women may have been involved in viticulture for a long time, but it's not like we were always permitted to do some of the, uh, you know, heavy lifting, so to speak. Uh, winemaking itself has actually long been uh, gender segregated. Women have been not only considered bad luck for the wine, but we've been considered too chatty and inefficient and weak. Yeah, a lot of times women would not be allowed to harvest, crush, or stomp the grapes for fear that our delicate physique would mess things up. But we were allowed to pick and sort grapes. But then when it came time to age the wine in the cellar, ladies, you keep out because... And I tweeted this out when I read this in the book Women of Wine because I found it so hilarious... Some wineries, even to this day, still ban women from being around fermenting wine because of the long-held menstrual myth that women on their periods can turn wine to vinegar. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting um, because I feel like I am around a lot more wine on my period. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of women can relate. Uh, but that's not to say, though, that there weren't a number of early pioneers. We found an article over at the Wine Institute just highlighting some women in the U.S. and specifically in California who were making wine and running vineyards in the 19th century, such as in 1886, we have 31-year-old Josephine Tykeson who founded a California winery, which was pretty unheard of in the day. Yeah, and she was actually the first woman to do so, not to mention the youngest, who did not, note, inherit it from a family member, like a husband or a father. Yeah, if you go over to Italy or France um, for those really old winemaking cultures, the women who would be involved in the family business, even if they were next in line to inherit it, a lot of times because of those 
outdated ideas about women really not being up to snuff for making wine would often be pushed to the side and running the vineyard. But um, gradually over time, clearly, that has changed. And even in the 1890s, I thought this was uh, pretty interesting, around 10 percent of California winemakers were women. So we headed west and started making wine. And in the past 50 years, there has been a lot of progress, especially starting in the 1960s. Women really began emerging as prominent winemakers, owning wineries, and assuming management positions outside of those family ties. Yeah, in 1973, we have Marianne Graff, who becomes the first American woman to graduate in enology from a university. And moving forward up to the 1990s, we see the growth of women in the ultra-premium luxury wine industry. Oh, that sounds fancy. I'm imagining them in turtlenecks and uh, blazers with the crests on them. And don't forget, like, the the elbow pad things. Oh, yes, some elbow pads. Uh, but in all seriousness, in 1998, Diane Nury became the first woman chairman of the Wine Institute since it began in 1934. And the same year, Napa Valley Vintners and Sonoma County Wineries Association also elected women board presidents for the first time. And then in the year 2000... In the year 2000... The first woman was admitted to the world's oldest Bordeaux Brotherhood, which is called the Girard of Saint-Emilion. And that was actually a really big deal because this brotherhood had been around for centuries as a man-only thing. Going back to what uh, the author of Women and Wine was talking about in terms of wine being that long-standing beverage of men of privilege, and they would have these drinking groups, kind of like uh, if we think about cigar clubs, where you know men go and like have cigars and expensive scotch and such, and it would be the wine versions of that. And finally, in 2000, mm-hmm. a woman was admitted. Yeah, it's a shame that all that wine's going to turn to vinegar. Well, and it's also a shame that when she was interviewed about it, I don't have her name in front of me, but when she was interviewed about it uh, and someone brought up feminism, she was quick to dismiss it. She was uh, put off at the idea that it had anything to do with gender equality whatsoever. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Well, I mean, some now nowadays, nowadays, in the in the 2013 year, uh, some of our most prominent wine writers, importers and winery owners are women. Uh, one of those is Mary Ewing Mulligan, who's the president of Manhattan's prestigious International Wine Center. And in terms of taste making, sommeliers are seeing more and more women joining their ranks, possibly helped along by those stereotypes about women having those finer palettes and also just with women having more interest and opportunities getting in there because uh, the sommelier is, uh, I mean, to talk about a niche mm-hmm. occupation. Um, and Bloomberg reported earlier in 2013 that of the prestigious Institute of Masters of Wine Group in London, there are now 87 women among the 287 worldwide masters living in 23 countries. And in both 2011 and 2012, there were more new female masters of wine than male. And nowadays, more than 40% of Somalis are women, although it hasn't always been an easy climb 
One, Maeve Pescara, who's a wine director for several restaurants in several states, says that it's basically taken women uh, a generation to work up through the ranks of sommeliers because they just face such bad attitudes. Yeah, she said many people used to think that I was just the hostess. But a lot of people, though, who are growing familiar with uh, women sommeliers working say that they actually prefer sometimes women to be selecting and suggesting wines for their fine foods because uh, they say that women tend to have a more hospitable approach, which could actually help take some of the snooty edge off of wine culture. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, Caroline, but it is rare that I would find myself in a restaurant that would have a sommelier (laughs) approach my table, at which point I would say, I'll have the house red. Yeah. No, I actually just had sort of an embarrassing moment the other night. I was out at dinner and, you know, having the right. Okay. Obviously, I'm not in a restaurant with a sommelier either, but having the right server to kind of walk you through, you know, if they know your preferences, having the right person can make quite a difference. Because the other night, my boyfriend and I had this waiter who was so, like, spastic and clearly not really paying attention to what we were saying. He didn't really care about us. He had these other big tables that he was worried about. And he, like, rushes over and he's like, well, you know, did you want a glass of wine or something or, like, a bottle? And I was like, well, yeah, I was considering having a glass. And, I mean, he just rushed me through the whole thing. And at the end, I mean, I got this wine that was just so-so. I had no idea what I was drinking. And uh, so it can be nice to have, you know, a kind... Uh, empathetic, sympathetic person walking you through the wine list. Right, because when you know more about the wine, you appreciate it more, it probably pairs better with the food, and it makes the entire experience more pleasant and worth the $16 plus that you're spending for that tiny bit of liquid in that giant glass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why are they so giant? I mean, I know why they are, but... Oh, I like the giant glass. I do, too. I'm afraid I'm going to break them. I, I do have a set of really, really nice, like, giant wine glasses that I do not pour the recommended amount into. <laughs> fill it fill it on up. It's like the fishbowl <laughs> yeah. fish glasses. It's like a hurricane. Sometimes you have fishbowl glass kinds of weeks. It just happens. So that's about it for our conversation on women and wine. We've looked at wine from the drinking and sort of taking it back to the making and the taste making of it. So now we want to hear from women wine drinkers out there and men wine drinkers too. Guys, do you like a white wine as much as a broad-shouldered Cabernet? I love that description for some reason. Broad-shouldered. Broad-shouldered Cabernet. Um, and thoughts as well on this normalization of not just the drinking of wine, but the drinking of wine to excess. And for Europeans listening too, do we sound like a couple of wine prudes sitting here? Because we're fretting a little bit over having a glass a day. Well, to be fair, I'm also calorie counting at the moment. So, yeah, I, I sometimes I, I just I put, I put wine with, you know, water. I'm just like, well, it's, it's it's in its own calorie free category. So with that, send us your thoughts. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also message us on Facebook and tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you. When we come right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring 
like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's some letters. So we got a couple of letters here in response to our episode on women and negotiation, which was our kickoff to our special four-part series on Lean In, airing on Fridays, which you should really check out if you haven't already. And this first letter is from Rihanna. She writes, I took a lot of psychology classes in college, and in one of them, the graduate assistant passed out a photocopied chapter of Women Don't Ask. It was so eye-opening to me that I've kept the chapter ever since and have tried to actively fight my urge to avoid confrontation and negotiate even though it scares me. 
I have conflicting feelings on this, though, because as a millennial, I've heard constantly over the past several years that I'm entitled, demanding, impatient, and ambitiously disloyal. So the thought that maybe I just expect more than I deserve has kept me from negotiating as much as I could because I'm not sure I'm really worth what I think I am. What do you think about that conflict, being a woman who in perception and reality probably doesn't know how to ask for what she wants or deserves, as well as being a millennial who is perceived as whiny and demanding and unrealistic? How do we reconcile those two facts or perceptions? I think that the way to reconcile that is to still follow those four steps that we outlined in the negotiation podcast on how to really understand and evaluate your own worth and make the approach without coming across as being too entitled or demanding. What do you think? Right. You can't, you can't appear like you're just out for yourself. You know, you have to express your worth, not in a dollar figure, but your worth in terms of what you have contributed and what you can contribute over and above. Um, and then you can make it about the dollar figure. Exactly. I think that making the collaborative approach, as we talked about in the podcast, will probably serve you doubly, not just as a woman, but as a millennial woman. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, like, I'm so tired of this millennial stuff. Like, it's just, you know, every older generation thinks the generations below them are just idiots. So you're already, I hate to say it, like fighting an uphill battle as far as stereotypes go of this generation. So all of that to say, I mean, I didn't mean to sound like all negative and jumpy about it, but... You know, all of that to say, you kind of even have to work a little bit harder at the negotiating table to let them know that you are there for them. You're there to make the company better. You're there to, you know, do the best job that you possibly can and really help them out with your impressive skill set. Um, you know, so they don't just think you're some college kid coming to whine to them. Exactly. So good luck negotiating, Rihanna, and thanks for writing in. And I have a letter here from Kat. Uh, she says, I'm 23 years old and in the second job of my career. With my first job right after graduating from college, I didn't even try to negotiate my salary. I wasn't particularly confident in my skills and was only slightly knowledgeable, thanks to my mom and information from salary.com, about how much I should expect to make. I pushed back a bit with my second and current job, but was shut down almost immediately because of my relatively little amount of experience. Within the first month, I'd already gotten lots of feedback that I've been doing such a great job and it's only been getting better. I actually discussed this very topic with a coworker yesterday and kind of regret not pushing back for more money, especially given all the positive feedback I've been getting. My coworker and I were discussing how long I should wait, if at all, until I approach my lead for a potential raise, how to go about doing it, etc. Whenever I decide to pull the trigger on that deal, I'll definitely be keeping the points you ladies made in mind. Which is awesome. Kat, I hope you, uh, I wish you the best of luck and I hope you keep us posted. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who's been keeping us posted with your emails. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send them and also connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can also follow us on Tumblr, StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com as well as our wonderful Instagram. We are at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And speaking of negotiation and lean in, don't forget this Friday is the fourth and final chapter in our series all about bossiness. So tune in for that and tune in as well to YouTube where you can check us out four times a week. 
YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.